The sermon today is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Thus says the Lord. Let me pray for us before we begin our sermon today. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we come together this Lord's Day and that you would teach us, Lord, from your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a teenager, I had a tremendous craving for sweets. I mean, things like cookies, cakes, and donuts, these were all my very favorites. I could literally eat goodies all day long. Well, one day, a good friend of mine who was aware of my situation presented me with an opportunity that I just could not turn down. He came over to my place with a, a banana cake and a quart of milk and offered to pay me exactly $20 if I could finish them both in less than five minutes. And at the time, I thought to myself, wow, what a great deal. I can't lose. This is an ideal situation for me. You mean to tell me that I can eat this cake for free and then get paid for doing it as well? I can't lose, right? Well, needless to say, I gobbled down that cake and drank that milk in record time. And then I received my 20 bucks. But unfortunately, it didn't take long for me to regret my decision. You see, my joy over winning that bet was very short-lived because I began to feel sick to my stomach almost immediately. And then and only then that I began to realize that I had been very naive about what I thought was an ideal situation. Now, the reason I share this story with you this morning is because I believe that if we're not careful as Christians, we can also have a very naive perception of the church in Acts chapter two. You see, when we read the book of Acts, we're tempted to look at this church and think of it as an ideal church, a perfect church, a church that was untainted by sin and corruption. But that was not the case because the church in Acts, you see, was far from perfect. No, you see, this was a very young church, a church whose members still had a lot of maturing to do. You might remember that this church was populated by a very large number of brand new Christians. In fact, about 3,000 members, there were about 3,000 members of this church, and about only 120 of these had been believers for some time. All the rest of these uh, Christians were brand new in the faith. And so as a church, you see, they were very immature and almost completely dependent upon the teaching of the apostles because they had not yet established any elders or deacons in this church to help govern them. And so not only did they have no framework for things like church discipline 
and missions, but they also had not yet faced the difficult challenge of accepting people of different ethnicities into their fellowship and embracing these people as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the church in Acts was definitely not a perfect church, nor was it a fully mature church, because the process of coming mature takes some time. And so Luke's goal was not to provide us with a picture of an ideal church, right? Uh, uh, That we might despair as believers or think less of ourselves as Christians. No, you see, on the contrary, what he does want us to understand is just how wonderful the church can be when we ourselves as members yield ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit and live our lives with true gospel conviction. And you remember that last week, we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit as it related to individual salvation, right? How people are saved through faith in Christ. And today we'll look at the work of the Holy Spirit as it relates to the church corporately, right? How we ourselves live our lives collectively as the church. And so as we uh, look at verses 42 and 47 this morning, I want us to think about what this passage teaches us about life in the church. And there are three things that I want us to focus on. Three things. First, a healthy church is made up of Christians who are devoted to the Lord, verse 42. And second, a healthy church is made up of Christians who are devoted to caring for one another, verses 44 and 45. And then lastly, a healthy church is devoted to evangelism, verses 46 and 47. But first, this morning, a healthy church is made up of Christians who are devoted to the Lord. Let's look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now here, Luke lists for us four things that the early church prioritized. Four ways that these new believers devoted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, which was the fruit of their being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing they did was to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the word uh, devote here in our passage uh, literally means to continue in steadfastly. And so the impression that we get here is that these brand new believers were faithful and steadfast to observe everything that the apostles taught. They were continually devoted to reading, learning, and growing in the knowledge of God's word. I mean, think about it. These early Christians did not yet have access to the New Testament, nor did they have access to things like John Calvin's Institutes or John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, They did not even have access, when you think about it, to the Westminster Confession of Faith. No, you see, they were completely dependent upon the teaching of the apostles and gave their entire allegiance to them. Now, Let's take a minute to think about what an overwhelming situation this must have been for the apostles, right? I mean, even though they had just been blessed with 3,000 new converts, they also had the responsibility to disciple these people and to faithfully shepherd them by training them in God's word. You see, although many of these new believers would have had some knowledge uh, of the Bible, But salvation through the person work of Jesus Christ, remember, was a completely new concept to them. And so the apostles had a tremendous tremendous task ahead of them as they sought to ground these people 
and believers and by teaching them to endure sound doctrine. And you know, ironically, I think we live in a day uh, when the importance of sound doctrine uh, has been minimized and been replaced by a person's emotional experience and feelings during worship. And so solid biblical teaching has now been replaced by a brand new theology that downplays the value of biblical doctrine and shifts the focus on emotionalism instead of God's word. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, there's a pastor named Costi Hinn who tells a story of what happened to him at his church in Gilbert, Arizona. He says, and I quote, some years ago, we decided to do things a little differently at our church. So we hired a professional band and paid them to play lights out music on Sunday mornings. In fact, our guitarists would tour the world with a famous boy band and then roll in on Sunday mornings to put on a show for our church. As far as the sermon would go, there was a mixture of Bible and some, some emotionally driven uh, stories with an ending that was designed to move everyone into an emotional response to the message. We were the typical modern, attractive evangelical church. And make no mistake about it, lots of people were drawn to our doors. But they were not coming for doctrine. Instead, they came for the personalities, the music, and the emotion. And you know what? It was working. This is why it seemed like uh, our teaching pastor had literally lost his mind when one day he suddenly fired all of our musicians. And going even further, he started hiring, uh, he started to preach verse by verse through the books of the Bible in order to grow our church in sound doctrine. He even changed our songs from the latest Jesus culture or Hillsong songs to songs that were rich in theological truths. Emotionally driven services were now replaced by the clear preaching of God's word. And then he says, there was an exodus of people who left the church. We went from being a fast growing church plant that held multiple services to suddenly having empty seats everywhere. Eventually, we started to grow once again after some time, but this time it wasn't merely numerical, but spiritual. Sound doctrine paired with prayer and patience did the heavy lifting, end quote. You see, I think this story helps us to see that a truly healthy church must be one that is devoted to sound doctrine as opposed to mere emotionalism because God has chose to reveal himself through the teaching of the apostles. And so in order for us to mature and grow in our faith as believers, we must devote ourselves to the teaching of the Bible. You know, Luke also tells us that we must also devote ourselves to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, the fact that fellowshipping, breaking bread, and praying together are all mentioned alongside one another in this passage tells us that these believers were doing something more than just studying God's word together. No, you see, they were worshiping together as well. In fact, God's word is what united them together in their worship and fellowship in the first place, just as it unites you and I together as believers. And the term fellowship in our passage can mean joint participation in something or to share something together in common. It's literally a kind of partnership that is used in the Bible to refer to our sharing in Christ's sufferings as believers. Philippians 3.10 
that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and I might share in his sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so clearly we can see that these believers devoted themselves to Christian fellowship as they shared life together by laboring alongside one another for the kingdom of God on earth and by participating together in his work. You know, it's uh, really sad today that there are many people who call themselves Christians, but who make no place to, for their lives in the church, right? They say they're saved, but they make no effort to be with other Christians. But you see, what they fail to understand is that God has called his people to share life together, to fellowship with one another. You know, commenting on the importance of fellowship, James Boyce once said that if you find yourself out of fellowship with God, you will soon begin to find yourself out of fellowship with other Christians as well. You will say, uh, I don't really like to be with Christians that much. They, to me, they're all hypocrites. And in a sense, they're right. Hypocrisy has always been found in the church, but a lack of fellowship reveals more about the person's very own distance from God than the state of the church. I think that's a very accurate and very important statement. You see, as Christians, it's very important that we devote ourselves to live life together in fellowship as believers. And according to Luke, Christian fellowship includes breaking bread and praying together as well. Now, there are some people who believe that this uh, reference to breaking bread here refers to the observance of the Lord's Supper, while others suggest that it simply refers to sharing a common meal together. But my opinion is that it probably refers to both. And so what Luke is telling us is that these early Christians not only partook of the Lord's Supper together, but they also shared common meals together. In other words, they met in church, they met in each other's homes, they ate together, they laughed together, they cried together. And so it doesn't surprise us then that they also would pray together as well. And again, James Boyce points out that the phrase, the prayers, in verse 42, can be used, to, can be used uh, to refer to something that is formal or informal, like coming together to pray for common purposes as well. Either way, prayer was a tremendous priority for the early church. And I think it's fair to say that their prayers, the prayers of these early Christians, is what prompted the Lord to add to their number day by day, those who were being saved in verse 47. You see, prayer is what opens the floodgates of divine power in the early church. And you want to know something else? It does the exact same thing in our day as well. Did you know that in 1858, uh, there was a prayer movement that was started by a lay person named Jeremiah Lanfier? Now, he was discouraged because he had desperately wanted to minister to the immigrants who lived in the neighborhood of his church. And so he was moved to pray for them. And so every day he began by kneeling alone in his Dutch Reformed church in New York City. And then one day, suddenly he was joined by six other men. Within a month, a hundred more men came and joined him. And soon, thousands of men began to pray each day at noon all throughout New York City. These prayer meetings soon spread across the country and led to what is now known as the Great Awakening 
1858. And this resulted in over one million Americans coming to faith in Christ within a two-year span, as well as another million people who were converted to Christ in Great Britain and Ireland. And this is what led the leading theologian of that day, Jonathan Edwards, to say, It is God's will that the prayer of his saints shall be the great and principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something to accomplish from his church, it is his will that the extraordinary prayers of his people should precede it. End quote. And so a healthy church is made up of Christians who are devoted to the Lord through learning, fellowshipping, breaking bread, and praying for one another. Now, our second point is that a healthy church is also made up of Christians who are devoted to caring for others. Look at verses 44 and 45 with me. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and, belonging, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, these verses give us an amazing illustration of the radical generosity of these early Christians. And what it shows us is that they were extremely unselfish and their genuine concern for others was demonstrated by their willingness to sell their very own property in order to provide for those who were in need. And in many ways, brothers and sisters, this is a very challenging passage for us today as Christians because there have been some people who have used this verse to justify the philosophy of communism. And communism, on the whole, teaches that there is no such thing as private property, that all property must be shared and equally distributed among society as a whole. That is certainly not what Luke is suggesting in our passage today, that as Christians, we must give up the right to own private property in order to distribute it to those who are less fortunate. No, you see, many commentators have pointed out that the verb for selling here in the Greek is in the imperfect tense. And this tells us that the goods and property that belonged to these Christians was not something that they immediately gave up once they were converted to Christ in order to support their entire community. No, you see, the language of the text suggests that their property, um, the property that they shared with those in need, was something that they voluntarily chose to give up over and over again in the imperfect tense as a need arose. Commenting on this passage, um, A.T. Robinson says, the sharing of property was evidence of a habit in the presence of emergency and not the creation of a new law. It was not actual communism, but they held all their property ready for use for the common good as it was needed. And so they gave voluntarily out of love. And I think it's important for us to remember that this new community of Christians was now more than 3,000 people. And in any community that size, there will always be those who are suffering from things like poverty and sickness, along with the various diseases that were common to people of that time. And so it's obvious that this church, this large church, had many different needs, right? Needs that were ultimately being met by their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, these early Christians did not just leave it up to the apostles to care for these people in the church. Why? Because these believers were converted to Christ. They died to self, and therefore, they cared for others. They gave generously and sacrificially 
to one another of their own accord, simply because they wanted to and not because they were forced. And what makes this even more remarkable is that all of us know as Christians uh, how very hard it is for us to be generous even after we're converted to Christ. You see, all of us are aware of the fact that as sinners, we are not very generous, generous people by nature. Um, perhaps many of us was extremely selfish before we came to Christ. But now because of the love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts, we too have died to the old selfish ways of living. And we've now become somewhat generous towards others. You remember the story of Zacchaeus in the Bible, right? How he was a wealthy tax collector who had selfishly defrauded many people in life. And yet when he was brought to repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit, he could say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You see, the point is that Zacchaeus, a man who was once extremely selfish, a man who once lived his life completely for self, was now a man who was deeply concerned for the well-being of others. What happened? Well, like Christians are in our passage today, he was converted and he died to himself and started living for God in the service of others. And that means things like money, property, and possessions, those things that once held sway over him, no longer had the same impact on him that they once did because he was now a child of the kingdom and died to his former ways. And this caused him to give freely to people from the heart, a heart that was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the extraordinary thing about the church in Acts is that we see this kind of thing happen, not just on an individual basis, right? Not just to one person or two people, but we see this thing happening with an entire community of believers who are all united in one purpose, to love and care for the needs of others. You see, the purpose of the church is to provide for both the spiritual and physical needs of God's people collectively as a whole. And so as Christians, all of us are responsible to love and to care for one another, that we may strengthen one another as we struggle together in this life. Because we are all one body and one flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we really do need each other in order to function properly. You know, there's this historic forest in California where they have these giant sequoia trees. And sequoia trees are the tallest trees in the world. I mean, they can grow to be about nine meters in diameter and more than 76 meters tall. And so some of them can even uh, live to be as long as 3,000 years old. Interestingly, however, the roots of many sequoia trees are only three feet deep. And so the question is, how are they able to survive and withstand all the torrential rain and gusty winds and earthquakes that are found in California? Well, the answer is that sequoia trees thrive in thick groves where roots can intertwine and fuse together. This gives them tremendous strength against the forces of nature. This way, they can withstand high winds and raging floods. However, they cannot survive alone. Instead, they form tribes and communities. Sometimes they grow so very close together, so very close to one another, that they each merge into the base of one tree. And the first thing they do 
is provide each other with strength and support through their intertwining roots. Not deep, but wide, living for the embrace of others. The merged roots also meet the needs for nurture. The entire system, you see, relies on its rooted connections. What an amazing analogy of the church of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus designed the church to be a vessel of caring for one another. It is a family where we ourselves as members are mutually strengthened and supported when we genuinely love one another as believers. And this kind of care, friends, is not just the duty of pastors or deacons or of any one person in particular, but every single one of us are called to be committed to loving and caring for one another as Christians. You see, we're called to live in community, to have all things in common in order to share with those who are in need. And brothers and sisters, if you've ever been blessed by the love and care of other believers in a time when you were going through uh, suffering, you know how very good it feels to have God's people come alongside you and walk with you in difficult times. And so a healthy church is a, health, is a church that's made up of Christians who are devoted to caring for one another. And finally, really quickly, a healthy church is made up, to Christ, made up of Christians who are devoted to evangelism. Look at the middle of verse 46. Having favor with all people. Now, I know that this text doesn't state directly that the church itself is devoted to evangelism, but the fact is that evangelism is something that was really taking place indirectly as a result of the way these believers were living out their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke tells us that they had favor with all people. In other words, the way these Christians conducted themselves was very impressive to those outside the church. And as a result, some unbelievers actually admire them because of the love and concern that they had for their fellow men. Now, we know that not everyone felt this way because the early Christians experienced persecution as well, sometimes even by their fellow Jews. But for the most part, unbelievers who witnessed what was happening in the life of this church and the lives of the people were amazed by it and they respected it, even if for whatever reason they chose not to join the church. And so I think it's very important for us to remember that as Christians, our conduct really matters to the watching world. And the way we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is extremely important if we're going to be effective in our efforts to evangelize those who do not know God. And friends, this message should really challenge us today as believers, shouldn't it? Are the things in our lives things that non-Christians envy? Do unbelievers envy the way we love others and care for others as brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there a, a kindness and generosity toward others in our lives that the world marvels in? You see, all these things are extremely important if we are to be effective in our evangelism for Christ. But you know what? Even though we're responsible to share the gospel with others through our words and actions as Christians, Aren't you glad that in the final analysis, evangelism is primarily a work of God? That in the end, it really is up to him. You see, verse 47, Luke says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
This tells us, brothers and sisters, that God's ultimate goal for the church on earth is to add new converts through it, through the faithful witness of his people, which means for us that God will honor, honor our faithfulness by adding to our very own assembly those who are day by day being saved in our very own generation as well. And knowing this, brothers and sisters, should help motivate us as Christians to devote ourselves to the Lord, to his people, and to the work that he is doing in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your church. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us many, many, Lord, faithful believers to live life alongside us, to walk together, Lord, during the times when we are happy, sad, and during the time that we are experiencing trials. Father, we pray that you would move all of our hearts, Lord, to love and care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.